Welcome to Clearly Quaker, an ongoing series of podcasts by Salem Quarterly Meeting, part of the Religious Society of Friends. Salem Quarterly Meeting is an association of seven Southern New Jersey Quaker meetings within Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. So it's a great pleasure to be here. Helena actually contacted me last October. And so this has been on my calendar for a long time, and I've been looking forward to it. Um, She asked me to speak um, just generally on sort of the situation in Israel and Palestine, but the particular focus that she urged me to speak to was uh, to my own wrestling with the question, and I'll I'll just read a question here that I think just to focus things is, should Quakers support the international nonviolent BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, to change Israeli policies towards the Palestinians? Um, and I think that's a great question. It's not an obvious answer. And I have uh, answered that question at different times in my life as absolutely not. That would be ill-informed and anti-Semitic. I've answered it at other times in my life as I'm not sure. And I now answer it in the last year is yes. And I've tried to figure out ways to support the movement. But I would just say that it's, it is totally okay for anybody to be anywhere on that spectrum today. Um, and um, so, but I think the question, I want to step back from the question just for a second to say that asking these kind of questions is core to Quaker faith. Um, That it's not just something add-on, it's core. And I was thinking in meeting for worship, which I also felt was a very powerful meeting for worship, um, of this passage from the faith and practice of New England yearly meeting of friends. And I find it, it certainly speaks to why I was so excited to join the Quaker movement as a 13-year-old who went from um, knowing only about the guy on the Quaker Oats box (laughs) to being a committed Quaker in the space of one weekend of getting kicked out of Boy Scouts for uh, supporting a Quaker protest against the war in Vietnam in the summer of 1968 on the town square of Galesburg, Illinois. Um, And yelled at and called a traitor and a communist and a disgrace to my uniform by my scoutmaster who pulled me out of the silent vigil that I attended for the first time, my first political act. And an older woman came up to me afterwards, put her hand on my arm and said, young man, I'm really sorry that happened to you, but you will always be welcome in a Quaker meeting. And I didn't know about Quakers, but I talked to my mom. She knew a a fair amount and encouraged me to call up. And I called up. And so imagine the phone call, 13-year-old kid calling somebody who's listed in the the, uh, phone book and the woman took me totally seriously as a spiritual seeker. She, did, she wasn't condescending at all. And 
I was asking her lots of questions and then she told me about where they had their meetings and it was a small meeting in Illinois. It was held in people's living rooms and it moved around. Um, and I asked her, what do Quakers believe? And some Quakers who get that uh, question, I was talking about this with Fred and Peg and Helena last night at dinner, is we'll go, oh, well, we don't believe this, and we don't believe that, and we don't believe this, and you can believe anything you want, and blah, blah, blah. And as a 13-year-old seeker, that would have bored the crap out of me. But she said, we believe that every man, woman, and child on this planet has access to divine love and presence and guidance. And that if we listen to that, we will develop the power and the wisdom to heal and transform our personal lives, our families, our communities, and we hope someday the world. And so I want to just read from New England Faith and Practice because it captures what excited me so much about after my first meeting for worship the next day from Friday to Saturday, I went, and I felt, this is my path, these are my people. And it sort of stuck with me, but sort of think of this as ministry in worship. Friends are called to help establish the kingdom of God on earth. Let us strengthen a sense of kinship with everyone. Let that kinship inspire us in our efforts to build a social order free of violence and oppression, in which no person's development is thwarted by poverty and the lack of health care, education, or freedom. Friends are advised to minister to those in need, but also seek to know the facts and the causes of social and economic ills and to work for the removal of those ills. So just by a show of hands, does that resonate with, who does that resonate with as sort of a key part of Quaker faith? Okay, now you can agree with that, but that doesn't mean we all agree about how do, what are the facts and what are ways to support real, real justice and change things for the better. I remember when I was 13 years old and just getting new to Quakers and reading things from the library and asking lots of questions, an older man in the Galesburg Friends meeting came up to me and he was trying to really impress me with how cool Quakers were. And he said, you know, Quakers were the first Christian denomination in the United States to give up slavery. And we did it before the Revolutionary War. And he thought I'd be really impressed. I have to say, my response was, Quakers own slaves? <laughs> and it took me a while, you know, the sort of the vehemence and the righteousness of you. But sometimes it took 100 years for Quakers as a body, 100 years to deliberate and say owning other human beings is sinful. And even after they came to that agreement, only 10% of Quakers engaged in boycotts against slave-produced products. Um, and many Quakers, but still just a minority of Quakers, were active in the larger abolitionist movement 
and where sometimes some Quakers were kicked out of their meetings for being abolitionist. And some Quaker meetings said, no, you can't have abolitionist meetings. In a, that's too worldly. Uh, and if you want to know more about that, this book is perfect. <laughs> um, and so I was being pretty judgmental at that point of how could this take a hundred years to decide this. And then I realized that when I noticed the Quakers on the square, the first adults in my community that I had ever seen stand up against the war in Vietnam in 1968, and I walked over and was scared to walk over, a year before, I was an ardent supporter of the war in Vietnam. My brother comes home and He's joined this group called Students for a Democratic Society while he's at college. And he's talking about getting tear gassed at demonstrations against the war. And I stand up at the dinner table and I go, you are a traitor and a communist. Do you hear the echoes? And I said, I can't believe you believe this. And I got up and I walked away. I wouldn't talk with him anymore. And I turned to my mother and said, you don't believe this crap, do you? And she said to me, honey, I think there's more to this war than you know. And so I started studying everything I could in a sort of a discernment journey to prove my brother wrong and be able to just crush him in a debate the next time he came home and we were sitting at the dinner table. And the more I learned about the US invasion and occupation of Vietnam, the more I realized this was not about freedom. This was about, an you know, think about it, two million Indo-Chinese were killed. Um, and it was to thwart the democratic will of the Vietnamese people. So that was a big change. And once I recognized, I had to go through a period of discernment to come to clarity that the war in Vietnam was bad. I got a little more compassionate about that it took a while in that period of time for people to figure out that slavery was bad. So I, th I went through, Helena talked about my pamphlet, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights. I had to go through the same discernment journey and it was painful and it took a lot of years to even get to the question of affirming that boycott, divestment, and sanctions, this movement is valuable. Um, now, different people have different objections to, to this, and so I wanted to tell a story that I just discovered about four weeks ago. And there were a set of two long articles in the New York Times in 1934. So, um, and Henry Cadbury, a professor of religion, um, I forget which Quaker college in Philadelphia, um, was asked to give the keynote talk to, at the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And this included rabbis from Canada, all over the United States in 1934. Think about the timing and the history here. And he was asked to speak about what is an ethical response to the rising Nazi tyranny and the anti-Semitism and persecution of Jews that was just beginning to really take hold in Germany. 
And Cadbury expressed total sympathy that this is wrong. This, this you know, we're with you. Um, Christians should be allies with um, rabbis in trying to change the situation. But as I'm reading this article, I was startled when Cadbury was saying to these rabbis, telling the rabbis that you should never feel anger towards the Nazis and you should not fight back in any way. And then he explicitly said, and you certainly shouldn't engage in a boycott of Germany and you shouldn't engage in any nonviolent resistance activities that are made popular by this guy Gandhi opposing British colonialism in India. That, and he preached Christian non-resistance. And he said, all we can do is show goodwill, make moral appeals, and negotiate. And he even went on to say, and this will solve the problem more effectively and quicker than any other kind of resistance, any kind of resistance. I was a little shocked reading this. I talked to my friend George Lakey about this, who knew Henry, and I said, and he was totally shocked about it. And the good thing is, Henry went through a journey of discernment and ended up disagreeing with his own advice. And the AFSC certainly no longer supports that advice and has endorsed various elements of the BDS movement for a number of years now. But so one question is, do we side with Henry Cadbury or do we take a critical look at this? What I also found interesting in these same articles is the rabbi's response. And it goes on, it's paragraphs, it's a huge set of articles, two articles. Um, and I want to read a couple of the responses. So Samuel Schulman, let me put my glasses on. And he was the honorary president of the conference, got up immediately after Cadbury spoke and said, he could not in good conscience subscribe to the principle of non-resistance to evil which Dr. Cadbury advocated. Rabbi Stephen Weiss, who the New York Times said, led a wave of objection to the advice of Professor Henry Cadbury, said from the conference podium, a boycott is a rightful refusal to not have any wish I had these all memorized, but it's important to get the words right. Rightful refusal to not have any relationship morally or economically with any government which has persecuted us and done injustice to our people. He then added, a boycott is not war, because Henry said the reason you can't do any nonviolent resistance is because that's just warshed, that's just war without bloodshed. It's, it's evil and it's a pacifist, he couldn't do it. So Weiss goes, a boycott is not war, it is a moral and economic weapon of self-defense. Now the conference was riled up by what Cadbury said, and they came to unity on a resolution before the conference was over that explicitly rejected Cadbury's advice. And these rabbis said in the resolution, moral persuasion should be supplemented 
by every manner of nonviolent resistance. Whenever people, and this isn't a quote, but it was in the context, whenever people face violent repression, social injustice, economic marginalization, and systemic inequality or persecution. I personally side with the rabbis on this, that in a when people are being systematically oppressed, nonviolent resistance is a moral response. There's also a lot of research to suggest that it's one of the most effective responses. And I can go into that if, if, if you want later on or over lunch. So that answers one question about is it, a, is it a moral means that satisfied me, that I'm with the rabbis on this and I'm glad Henry changed his position to, to agree with the rabbis later on. I'm certainly glad the American Friends Service Committee changed its position on this and I'm proud of the <coughs> AFSC for um, embracing the BDS movement. Now, there's another objection that could be made to supporting the BDS movement, which is the target that Israel shouldn't be targeted, that it is not responsible for oppression and persecution of Palestinians, that it's a progressive, peace-seeking, democratic State, a jewel in, in the Middle East in terms of democracy and humane treatment and that it embodies Jewish ethics um, really well. Which was the position that I agreed with for many years and my hero Bayard Rustin agreed with. Bayard was absolutely um, intense about anybody who criticized Israel for its treatment of Palestinians on uh, calling it unjust or undemocratic or comparing it with South African apartheid were just wrong, ill-informed at best, patently anti-Semitic at worst. He was so adamant that in 1971 he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and the Washington Post with an open letter to Richard Nixon and this is our famed social justice, Quaker, pacifist activist, and said Nixon should increase military aid to Israel. In 1971, after the 1967 wars, where Israel had now occupied all of historic Palestine, was in full control of the entire t territory, and he said we should support it militarily. And he said this may sound like a contradiction, but it's the only democracy. And the Palestinians are whining and complaining and they're anti-Semitic terrorists. They have no legitimate claim for justice. I don't believe that anymore, but I believed it for the longest time. And so the pamphlet is sort of my journey from believing that to having a different view. And for um, people who want to see somebody struggle with that question, um, I welcome you to read it. But after I wrote the pamphlet, I came across this book. Dov Waxman is a political scientist, I think at Northeastern University. And he wrote this book called Trouble in the Tribe, 
the American-Jewish conflict over Israel. And what he's talking about here is the question of Israel and its treatment of Palestinians is hugely controversial within the American Jewish community. And he goes back historically over you know, public opinion of the Jewish community and analyzes it over time. And he's a great researcher and a really good writer. And he said, historically, there's four responses to originally the Zionist movement and then the state of Israel among the US uh, Jewish community. And the four responses he describes here uh, for the Jewish community were mirrors of my own journey um, that's described in the pamphlet. The first group, he says, is disinterested. It's just not that big of an issue. You know, we're living in the United States. That's a long ways away. Not just, just not that interested. Then he talks about the group which is devoted to the Zionist cause, sort of at all, all costs. Um, and the Zionist cause, the mainstream Zionism was this idea we were going to encourage primarily European Jews to colonize um, Palestine from the late 1800s on with the idea very early on of creating a heavily militarized state that would have a majority of Jews and would have as, take as much of the territory of the British mandate of Palestine as possible with as few Palestinians in it. And one of the things you have to remember is like when I started learning more, um, and this is where the third group, you have the devoted, which I was at for a long time, and then the third group is disillusioned that has looked at the history of uh, Zionism or Israeli policy towards the Palestinians and is going, this is not ethical. This does not meet the standard of Jewish ethics in the prophetic tradition. Um, and, uh, and this has existed, uh, this disillusionment um, has existed for a long time. Uh, the majority of Jews in the world were thought Zionism was just folly for a number of, of years. The Holocaust, of course, changed that um, in very powerful ways. But the, the fourth group is dissidents, people actually opposing it. And in the pamphlet I talk about, here I am, this sort of ardent Zionist who hasn't, who supports Jewish liberation and is horrified by the Holocaust. And that is part of the motivation of Zionism. But as I discover, largely through my Jewish friends who went to Israel and came back very conflicted, that there's so much I loved about being in Israel and the culture and everything. But I'm really concerned. There's this huge right-wing drift in the government. The, the narratives of racism against the Palestinians are horrible. I can't understand why it is just to occupy land. And I remember one of my Jewish friends did this research project in 1948 where close to a million Palestinians were displaced but then refused the right of return, which is part of international law. Um, and the, the small number of Palestinians who remained within the expanded territory of Israel in 1948 were under military rule for, for decades. And so I'm getting all this new information and it's really uncomfortable and it's painful. But so I go through my own disillusionment. But I found some comfort when I found, when I started doing research, my favorite Jewish philosopher has always been Martin Buber. 
and I remember as a teenager and in my 20s reading a lot of his books, he actually, before the State of Israel um, was founded, he was arguing against the creation of the State of Israel, which I found interesting. He supported Jewish immigration to Palestine. He supported a growing Jew, a vital Jewish community that could be, you know, help revitalize and, and keep together um, world Jewry, Jewry after, you know, in the face of pogroms, you know, the rising Holocaust he was seeing in the 30s and 40s. But in, in late as 47, he went to, I think it was the Peel Commission or one of the commissions international, and he said, we don't want to create a Jewish state in Palestine. We don't want to create a purely Arab state that would expel Jewish neighbors. We want to create a democratic, and he said democratic socialist state that would be binational and have, would have rights for all. And he said that if we create a state, we are um, a Jewish state the inevitable consequence will be war, ethnic cleansing, and the soul of Judaism being eroded by having to be persecutors um, and oppressors of the people who already lived there. And a Zionism slogan in the early days was a people without, a, 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 let's see, a land without a people for a people without a land. Problem was, there was a people in the land. One of the early Zionists wrote back um, to his family and said, I'm here in, in Palestine. The bride is beautiful. Unfortunately, she's already married to another. And so that's where you tie in a laudable goal of Jewish liberation and mixing it with in the 1800s and 1900s, European ethno-nationalism and a sense that it's okay to colonize uh, people in the third world. That's, that's just the norm. And fusing those two things together so it created over time um, a, a particularly harsh system. So this is where I got, but I was in the dissolution camp for the longest time. What made it personal to me, and I decided to first finally write, think about and write this pamphlet, and then to get active, was a friend of mine, Syed Atshan, who teaches at Swarthmore. He's a professor in the Peace and Conflict Studies program there. You know, it always makes a difference when it's personal. So he's a Palestinian. He's a gay Christian Quaker Palestinian who when he left Palestine to become a student at Swarthmore, his mother said, you have to promise me you'll come back every year for Christmas. And a dutiful son, Syed, said, yes, of course, Mama. And so a few years ago, he was going back like he always did and he was detained. And he was strip searched. And he was interrogated. And they kept focusing on this question of 
you have made some public statements in support of the BDS movement. What is that? Who do you know? Tell us everything. Because he supported the BDS movement, and this was a few years ago, after two days, he was sent to Jordan and told he would never be allowed back to see his family in Ramallah. This is not an isolated case. He asked why they wouldn't tell him. He asked the Jordanians who had him when he was first deported, and they said, well, it lists on your file that you're a security threat. A pacifist who believes in using nonviolent resistance to support what he believes are the legitimate justice demands of his people. And the demands of the BDS movement are ending the occupation, ending the colonization, the settlements, which is illegal under international law, ending the military siege of Gaza. Um, providing full and equal rights for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And the most controversial uh, point also, as if those aren't controversial enough, the, the last goal of the BDS movement in the call is the right of return for the dispossessed under international law. And it's to honor the right of return because people cannot always return to their homes and businesses and farmland because after 1948, the Israelis destroyed over 500 Palestinian villages um, and built things on, on, on top. So you would have to negotiate and figure out what does honoring the right of return mean under that situation. Now, if you remember your Quaker history, when, what was it, Charles II was restored after 20 years of the Civil War and Cromwell, the monarchy is restored. Many Quakers at that point were heartbroken and crushed. And they quickly wrote a letter saying, we are the harmless people called Quakers and tried to differentiate themselves from people who were trying to overthrow the monarchy. There's something really important, I believe, about being harmless people, that we do, are not causing harm to other people. But I'm thinking of Syed, my dear pacifist, sweet friend, being called a security threat. And I actually think that part of being faithfulness is being a threat to systems of oppression, to systems of persecution. And I come by this pretty early. I mean, I became a Quaker when I was 13, but I think things were set when I was six or seven, because I remember the first time I heard the word Holocaust, and I didn't know what it was. I didn't understand it, but I knew it must be something bad by the context. So I went home and I go, Mom, what's the Holocaust? And I'm thinking now, when I think back, okay, you're a parent, and your six to seven-year-old child asks you what is the Holocaust. 
that's some tough choices. You could lie and minimize and not cause the child to sort of break their spirit of the enormity of the capacity of human beings for evil against other human beings. Or you could tell the truth, which would be her inclination, but crush a child's spirit. My mom decided to tell me the truth. We sat out on the back porch and we sat there for a long time. And as a six or seven year old, I don't remember, I'm hearing about 11 million people being killed in the concentration camps. Six million of those being Jews. So she told me the horror and was revealing to me the worst that human beings could be. But she made a really good choice. And she told me about the Danish resistance to the occupation and the various ways that Jews were protected, the various ways that what was being taught in schools, the Nazi curriculum was being subverted. And she told me a story which she believed was true at the time. I found out that it's, it's somewhat exaggerated, but I look back at it now is there's a lot of stories in the Bible that I don't think are factionally true, but that they're spiritually truthful and meaningful. And so she told me this story about when the Nazis came in, one of the first things they do when they take over a country is decree that the Jews in that country had to put stars of David on their clothing. But hundreds of thousands of Gentiles, she told me, sewed stars of David, including the Danish king. And so in the same moment that I learned how horrible human beings could be. I learned that people could be brave. They could act in solidarity. They can work hard together to get things done that improve the situation under the most horrible conditions. And she is not one to not tell you what the moral of the story is. She didn't just, I was kind of getting it, but she said, if you are ever the target of that kind of oppression and persecution, you need to resist it. Don't knuckle under, but resist it. And find other people that you can work with and figure out ways that you can resist it. And she said, and if you are not the target of the persecution, but you see it going on, your responsibility is to become an ally to those people and do whatever you can. I believe, and we can discuss more, that the demands of the call that was put together by 170 civil society organizations in Palestine in 2005, calling for an international nonviolent boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, movement akin to the movement that actually helped materially trans end apartheid and create expanded human rights and democracy in South Africa, that's what it's modeled on, is a way that we can show solidarity and, and be uh, effective. There's no guarantees it'll be effective. And I'm gonna quick check the time and then I will. 20 
Okay, so I went last night to look around at what are some of the impacts, and there's a website that the, that the Palestinian coalition that sparked the boycott put, and they list some of the impacts of the boycott already. Um, and I think it will stimulate us to think about what are the things we could do we could do that could support the boycott. So here's just some of them. This wasn't all of it. But more than 30 U.S. student associations and 11 Canadian student associations have voted to support divestment from Israel apartheid. BDS is supported by the UK National Union of Students, 30 other student unions and student organizations in Belgium, South Africa, Brazil, Chile, and beyond have supported. Academic associations in the US and Canada, Ireland, Qatar, South Africa, and the UK have voted to support BDS. Supporters include the Teachers Union of Ireland and the American Studies Association. U.S. churches, including the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Church of Christ, the United Methodist Church, and the Mennonites, and some Quaker bodies have voted to divest from Israeli and international companies targeted by the BDS movement. Thousands of artists and cultural figures, including Roger Waters, Marcel Khalif, I actually don't know who Marcel Khalif is, Alice Walker, know who she is, support the cultural bo boycott of Israel, and stars including Laura Hill, Elvis Costello, and Vanessa Paradis have canceled shows in Israel following requests from the BDS movement. The Chilean government suspended free trade agreement talks with Israel during the 2014 attacks on Gaza. Bolivia has cut di um, diplomatic ties with Israel. Brazil refused the appointment of a settler leader as the Israeli ambassador to Brazil. The corporation G4S has long provided security services and equipment to Israeli checkpoints, illegal settlements, and prisons where Palestinian political prisoners are held without trial and subjected routinely to torture. After the international stop G4S campaign, Cost the company lost contract worth millions of dollars, G4S announced that it plans to completely sell its Israeli subsidiary. French multinational Viola completely withdrew from Israel after a BDS campaign over its role in the colonization of Palestinian land. Um, that campaign cost billions of dollars in lost contracts for the group. The Israeli state water company Mekorot has lost out on contracts in Brazil, Argentina, Portugal, and the Netherlands as a result of the BDS campaigns. Community mobilizations during the 2014 attack of Gaza prevented Israeli ships from docking at a port in Oakland, California. Following on actions by dock workers in ports of South Africa, Sweden, and India. BDS was a major factor behind the 46% drop in foreign direct investment in Israel in 2014. And it goes on and on with a variety of, of things. And I, I won't bore you, but I'll pick a couple of more. Um, local councils, local city councils, have supported BDS initiatives. And they've been passed in more than 
50 local councils in Spain and dozens of other uh, councils in the UK, Australia, Sweden, and Norway, and Ireland. Now, one of the things that we need to understand if you support, if you end up supporting BDS in any way, vocally, or actually taking action, or as a body choosing to divest, or boycott, or various kinds of sanctions or to support them, is that in the last 15 years, the very meaning of the word anti-Semitism, new definitions have been drafted that include criticism of Israeli policies. Now the classic definition is anti-Semitism is hatred, discrimination, or persecution of people based on their being Jewish. <coughs> but now they're saying, but if you criticize, quotes, the Jewish state of Israel, that is anti-Semitic. And so you have to develop a tough skin if you're going to do that. The other thing is the Netanyahu government has since 19, uh, no, 2013 is getting so upset about BDS. I mean, the U.S. considers BDS, I mean, Israel considers the BDS movement as one of the greatest potential threats around the world, just as the South African white minority elite did um, when it was directed at them. Um, and so it's, there are legal sanctions against advocating BDS within, um, within Israel. Mike was telling me earlier that because I published this pamphlet and on my Facebook page there's things supporting this, that I would not be allowed in to Israel to do an educational visit. Um, and there's some truth. Remember what happened to Syed. But in January of this year, Israel also named 20 organizations around the world that its staff and volunteer leadership are no longer allowed into Israel or Palestine because Israel controls entry to Palestine. Um, the two U.S. groups are both ones that I belong to. The American Friends Service Committee staff is now no longer allowed in Israel because they support various aspects of the BDS. And Jewish Voice for Peace, which is where I do my major interfaith work uh, in, in D.C. Um, the other thing is they've tried, the supporters of Netanyahu government and these policies of oppression have not only tried to demonize advocacy of BDS as anti-Semitism, there is now in the U.S. a push to criminalize boycotts. 25 countries in the United States, and I'll, I'll send some, some links about this and other resources to Helena so she can send them on. But 25 states have either uh, sort of policies or actual law that says that we, you know, are various kinds of criminalization of the BDS movement. 50 governors, that's a governor from every state and the mayor of Washington, D.C., have signed on to a letter encouraging legislation to make it criminal to support the BDS movement. Um, in the last two years, with bipartisan support, national legislation, I think it's the anti-BDS bill, I, 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 ha I have the, the link somewhere,
but it's national legislation to criminalize this. This is a huge threat to democracy and democratic freedoms and the rights to, to dissent. Um, and so that hasn't passed. And we have to realize that you know some people that we might happily vote for, given the alternative, are also like, when the Methodist Church was considering supporting some aspects of BDS, Hillary Clinton came and spoke at that national convention. And she was adamant that anybody who supports the BDS movement is anti-Semitic and should be demonized. And she has supported in the past ideas about criminalizing the activity. Now Quakers have a bit of a history of willingness to go against the grain. And I'm reminded of Paul writing the friends and followers of Jesus in Rome, capital city of the biggest empire that had existed at that point. And Paul said, do not conform to this world. Do not conform to the ways of empire. But enrich yourself with the Spirit of God and choose to do justly and rightly. And I think that's a choice that we need to face. Now, not everybody agrees. I mentioned my friend Syed. Some of you maybe remember this story. Friend Central High School had a couple of Jewish students who started um, a Friends of Justice for Palestine group at the school. And they organized about 40 students. And they had two academic advisors, two teach, uh, faculty advisors. Um, both of these women were queer women of color who supported that. In their talking, they decided they wanted to invite Syed Achan, this Quaker pacifist from Palestine who was just um, you know, a few miles away at Swarthmore teaching peace and conflict studies to come give a talk. The head of school heard about this and decided that since Syed has publicly supported the BDS movement, it would be completely inappropriate to talk at a Quaker school. And so what the head of school did was pull back the invitation for students to even hear from a Palestinian Quaker. And he wasn't even intending to talk about BDS, but he had supported it. So they did that. And they ended up firing the two faculty sponsors of this group that was started by Jewish students as a way to tap down uh, BDS. So it's like, it's a struggle within our own community. It's not just out there. Um, And the last thing I want to say is that I also think we should have some compassion for people who don't support the BDS movement, who maybe believe certain things that I used to believe. And maybe even said, because I, I feel bad. I feel I was morally, I was immoral and intellectually corrupt when I used to call people anti-Semitic when they would make um, criticisms of Israeli policy towards that. And 
So I think in the same way I learned we had to be compassionate for people who couldn't quite catch up to the notion that owning other human beings might be wrong, that we're going to have to engage in struggle among ourselves and with the wider world and moral appeals and education are hugely appropriate. But I believe it's sort of our Quaker vocation. Remember the first two decades of Quaker history, we were all about what was called the Lamb's War to create the peaceable kingdom. Nonviolent revolutionaries. Nine, th nine to 10,000 Quakers were thrown in jails during those first two um, things. Some were tortured in jail. Some died in jail. Um, and the metaphor switched after Charles II. And it was, well, if we can be left alone and we can be tolerated, it, the, it was no longer the Lamb's War. It was, we want a hedge between us and the world. I can understand that. People had been under s severe repression for 20 years. But I think we have to decide what does it mean to be truly radically faithful? What does it mean to not conform to the ways of empire? And what does it mean for us to bring out the best of the Jewish prophetic tradition that stands up against oppression and injustice? And I think we have to take risks, support each other, and engage in creative actions. And I would invite you all to seriously consider whether or not you can support and find creative ways, if you can, the BDS movement. And I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to Clearly Quaker. We hope you have found this podcast thought-provoking. If you have questions or comments, or would like to learn more about South Jersey Quakers, reach us at salemquarter.net. Thank you.